ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, this is the uh, 10th podcast for um, uh, the series. Uh, with me in the studio is uh, Dr. AJ Bartlett. Um, Adam is the um, author of an extraordinary monograph on uh, Plato and Badiou called Badiou and Plato and Education by Truths. Uh, he's also the co-author with Dr. Justin Clemens and John Rofe of uh, Lacan de Les Badiou uh, and the editor of the Badiou Key Concepts uh, collection. Adam, uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, okay, uh, Dr. Bartlett, as you know, I start every session with the question, uh, how did philosophy ruin your life? Yes, my name start every podcast with that question, and I've been trying not to rehearse an answer. <laughs> then you're stuck to repeating the rehearsal. I've been struck, I guess, well, I was struck some time ago by this question, as you know, Brian, because mm. I sent you a sort of a terse email mm-hmm. the very premise under which you were using this. Yes. But also, I've been aware of the question because, you know, it's titled a great unwritten book. Yes, indeed, by Justin Clements, our mutual friend. By yeah. someone we both know, mentioned, yeah, which I think should be made an unwritten book to be going to use that title, and that's what I guess I want to talk about, because you know, clearly the title, or clearly the question references Plato, I think, Book six, where they try to work out the the nature of the philosophical, you know, um, um, well, look, yeah, you know, what is the nature of he he might he or she might become a philosopher and so on. And they, yes, and, and they work through this, and they talk about whether the, the philosopher, in the context of the city as it is, is a sort of a useless figure and of no good to anybody. And they go through all this sort of stuff, and I guess the question in a way references that notion of, you know, somehow. If you take up philosophy, you're ruined in terms of the city, something like that. Yes. Yes, that's what you get. But the, the interesting thing about the question is, it's like, in some sense, it's an ironist's question. Indeed. Not necessarily a good thing. No, like, agreed. Yes. Somewhat, you know, Mr. Rorty, <laughs> the, the dinner party irony yes. of, of, of that scene that Deleuze um, paints. But yeah, dinner at Mr. Rorty's, yeah. Those pictures are a trap because there's a, a few things in the question itself, not in terms of the content and not to you're going to answer, the why the question itself is set up. It leads to a few presumptions. Mm. Uh, the question of, you know, you can say what well, is a question of life, the question of, you know, what, of, of ruin and so on. But also, for a philosopher, it's a tricky question because it, presu- it presumes that you are a philosopher. Yes. In the first instance. And then you assume yourself to be within philosophy and then you orient yourself vis-a-vis the city in some sort of fashion. And you make the, you know, pseudo-ironic claim that, oh, because I'm a philosopher, I'm ruined for life. Indeed. It becomes a conceit. Yes. Not careful about the question itself, and that's the way it's set up to be, of course, and that's part of what um, you know. Plato in that discussion and in that, well, in the entirety of the dialogues, is trying to expose in people who claim a knowledge of some sort, or indeed, at that point in the Republic, when they're discussing those who are considered by the public itself to be philosophers, to essentially be in conceit and around this notion that in fact they are philosophers, or they know what philosophy is, and so on and so on. So the question itself contains a trap, if you like, for those who would, those who would be philosophers. You take it at face value and go, oh, yes, well, you know, once upon a time I was sitting there reading this thing, and I was struck. Yeah. And you've already sort of walked into the idea that, well, I am a philosopher, and so I can speak to this question from that position. But the problem is that you don't really know if you are or even not, I think. And, of course, in the Republic, what they're talking about, they're trying to precisely discern what it, what it might or more likely is not that philosophy is, and then what type of character or what type of nature it is who is best suited to 
pursuing or committing themselves to that um, trajectory. So in that sense, I think it's important to think about the question, you know, otherwise you can walk into that uh, trap and be considered and be one of those figures who, look, I'm not saying everyone has answered it in that fashion necessarily, I'm <laughs> saying it's a caution that I've, uh, I want to take. So, because in that section of the Republic, precisely, they go through a few different things and, you know, in the first instance, they're saying, yes, of course, the philosopher looks like an idiot to the people, you know, he's, he, he can't really offer them anything, he's, he's committed to these things which are unchanging, you know, truth, justice, whatever it might be, whereas in the city, everything's changing all the time, and people are pursuing their interests and their pleasures, and that's what they deem to be good, but the philosopher can't be doing that, and so he's not, he's not joining in, he offers nothing. And so in the first part of that, there's a, a, an idea that the public themselves are aligned with the sophists, as they point out, who in that instance are only those who encourage the people of the city to keep on believing what they believe. Yes. And then make money from it. Yes. You know, which will lead us on to later to questions of education here. Yeah, indeed. But then they shift from that and they say that the problem is that it's not that the public is always going to think that. The precisely the problem is that we haven't been able to discern what a philosophical nature is and how it might exist or come to exist within a particular context or a particular city. And that the people themselves, you shouldn't re- um, you shouldn't reserve a certain appropriate for them because if we can explain to them what a real philosopher is rather than one of these philosophers who poses as a philosopher for the people, then the people themselves will understand that um, philosophy is very important and critical, in fact, to any proper or any good city. So there's this sort of doubling or, this, or there's this notion of the public is precisely not this, you know, uh, amorphous band of morons who, mm. who will perennially hate any attempt to think what is true. The idea that at least they're talking about there is if we can demonstrate the true nature of philosophy or the philosopher, it's the same thing. You know, the good city and the good man, if you like, or the good woman are the same in Plato because justice is the same in the city as, as in an individual. Yes. So that, you know, that they make that case the whole time, which is why you get a sophistic city because sophistry, the character of sophistry is the same in an individual as it is in the city. So if you've got sophists running around everywhere, you've got a specific city, those two, that makes, that makes sense. If we can intervene into that, change that orientation to the way of the world, demonstrate that, therefore, the veracity or the, or the central importance of philosophy and what it does, which is part of what they're trying to do, what does it actually do this thing called philosophy, then you can have a city in which philosophy is not ruling in the sense that we understand the sovereign rule, but in the sense that it's sort of the currency if you like, of the city, right? And so the public itself will become philosophic in that sense. Not individually philosophers, but philosophic in the sense that they'll participate in, in the manifestation, the demonstration of that understanding of how it is to organise yourself. That's the idea of that, I think. So, to get back to the question on ruination, I think, <laughs> in, in a certain sense, the, the, point of it, the point of it is that philosophy doesn't ruin your life, philosophy makes the true life possible. Yes. So... You know, it's, 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 it's that which is interesting. So philosophy doesn't ruin. If you come to philosophy, you're actually, in a sense, committed to having done with a ruined life. If you know what I mean. Yes. Because in that sort of sense, the sense that they're sort of trying to set up, you know, if you live within a city like this, which doesn't precisely, you know, orient itself to what is good or true or whatever it might be, and try to work out what those things are, of course, as well. Not just imagine there's some ideals which exist outside there, which is undetonic, let me know. Against against cliche, against, against received yeah, wisdom, cliche, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which which orients a lot of still orients the majority of critiques of Plato. Most definitely, you know, yeah. 
I read some scholarship on Plato before Plato, but it certainly orients my most all the critiques of Plato. That's a problem. But, um, and we live, as you say, um, in your book, which we'll talk about later, in, a, in an anti-Platonist age, like yeah. the, the, the yeah. reflexive anti-Platonism as the, as the gesture of, every, of everyone who would call themselves a philosopher these days. For like, sure. I mean, you, you, mean, you, know, you can say it's like the, the hipster move in contemporary philosophy huh. is to disavow Plato. Yes. That you're, 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 you're in, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the case. So... So the question of like, philosophy is not doesn't ruin your life. Philosophy is what makes the true life possible. And life itself, in that sense, is you, 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 to live without philosophy is what they're suggesting is to live within a sort of a, a corrupt configuration of, of, of you know, of, of, well, to, to live in a sort of a corrupt, a corrupt orientation of what knowledge is or, what, or what's possible for us. Mm. So you get out of that. So you, I mean, in, in saying that, you accept um, the, it, the ruination that philosophy performs. Like, I think this is a brilliant dissection of the question. The ruination that philosophy performs is only a ruination of the, the false definition and conception of life around certain figures of interest in particular. And I, I definitely take your point while, um, while also not wanting to retroactively like abuse past guests or, so, or something like that. But I agree with you that if you take the simple irony to sort of say, yes, well, like I'm interpolated by that question insofar as I'm philosopher and ruination is to be understood ironically where I kind of feel a bit sorry for myself, right? Like I say, on the one hand, <laughs> on the one hand, I'm a, you know, um, like I'm, I'm a philosopher. So I assign this fairly um, grandiose um, title to myself unquestioned and then also take the trouble this is one of the ways you can interpret the question about it to sort of pity myself <laughs> like uh, um, on, 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 online but, but what that's not doing is taking into account the, the really serious questions that arise from the juxtaposition implied in the title of I suppose f- philosophy life and ruination right so so to answer a question about what a ruination would constitute you have to be able to say something about what life is which is a philosophical question and and what is an even more difficult question for Plato what the philosopher is as distanced from the from the sophist so I suppose this um, leads me um, to my next, to my sort of um, organically to my next question. So, um, one of the one of the ways in which you define philosophy in your work, and I should say um, um, to the listeners that Adam's work is is consistently um, consistently revolves around the question of education, right? And with um, and 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 has a sort of remarkable power. I mean, I could I could flatter Adam Adam by by talking about the various merits of the work, but I uh, um, which are which are undoubtedly there. But I think that there's a there's a power to Adam's work, irrespective of any of any merits of of kind of um, uh, intellectual rigor or kind of rhetorical power that just comes from the simple platonic orientation to the question of education right that that you are as far as i know the only author on the question of education who actually considers the question of what is education unanswered right like that there's, there's there's this extraordinary power that just comes from like there's 
endless conferences and papers written about education at, at, at any given time. Probably where we are in uh, the college where I work, probably right now there are a few seminar rooms full of earnest people discussing what education is. But your work is the only work that I can think of that actually says, asks that simple Socratic question, what is education? Right? Um, and I think when you ask that question, potentially as Plato does, you already put yourself in, in conflict with the idea that we know what education is or we know what education is for insofar as like the way we know what a good life is because we, we consider that we have knowledge of our interests, right? We know, we know what interest education serves and what it should serve. We know how it is to further our education the same way we know what a good life would be. And so I think one of the first thing you do is, is point to the, the void. So can you tell me a little bit more about um, first that, that conflict between philosophy and interest as it comes out in, in your work and, and in your reading of Plato? Um, uh, perhaps particularly around around the the question of the of the Platonic critique of democracy, and and second, perhaps about about the relationship between education and interest in in, in general. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess if you can, if, if I can sort of insert, and this I think in a little way speaks to the question of ruin, but in a different way. Right. Sort of a little bit of philosophy is biography sort of thing. Sure. The what happened to me was a strange thing, maybe in my early teens, was that, um, you know, like pretty much everybody, everybody or a lot of people, particularly around my age group in that time and in that context, I mean, school was just like a place you were assigned to, you had to go, you were consigned to it, (laughs) no one wanted to be there. Absolutely. There was only ever a few kids who took it seriously, the rest of us didn't take it seriously, which isn't to say we didn't take seriously as a lot of the things that went on there or we weren't interested in you know maybe literature or maybe art or whatever it might be but within that context there was no real way to pursue those things given or, you know given what was given to us as a, a way into those things and so you know we sort of had an antagonistic relationship to it early on but I also discovered about 12 or 13 the clash and I who were an English rock band from the set like <laughs> yeah young people so like <laughs> Yeah, educate yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the thing about the clash was that Joe Strummer wrote some pretty uh, uh, incredible lyrics. He was very clever lyrically, but he also spoke about things that were going on. So I started to learn about the Sandinistas, South America, the right. Spanish Civil War, you know, a whole range of things which just did not come up ever in the orbit mm. or in the milieu or whatever, the family, the school, the education system itself, you know. So you started to get this... Apart from the information itself, what it gave me, I guess you could say, and and this is again the question of ruin, not necessarily for the best outcome. No, it sort of makes it difficult for you to, you know, if you, if you take that seriously, to put up with some some things. But it gave me a different orientation to the situation I was in because the situation I was in was telling me a whole range of things, and you just inscribe within it, and you just go along and believe it, and you listen to things, you get. You get this. You have this antagonism to the way that it's presented to you, and so on. And you can't. You're not in a position in any way to try to turn that antagonism or that anxiety, if you like, into something which can become productive of something else. Yep. And that's one of the horrible things about what happens is that everyone sort of experiences this symptomatically in some way, 
really in relation to whatever it is that you're being given in some sense. And you know you've been giving something which is not the thing itself in some way. Mm-hmm. And it registers as an anxiety or, or, or an anger or in various things. But then because that's all there is, there is no other way to start to begin to produce something else. And this is the, 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 the difficulty of that. But, you know, listening to the clash and then getting into the clash, from the clash, getting other references, reading widely, getting into literature and that sort of stuff. And, you know, starting to try to put together some, not just another orientation to the world, but a way to um, orient yourself to the world, which was completely dif- distinct and different. And that's sort of where the point, I guess, of the, of the encounter or the point of ruination for me, I guess, which eventually led into philosophy and stuff. But it also led away from institutions, it led away from school. Yes. I didn't go to university. Mm-hmm. I didn't finish high school. Mm-hmm. I detested it so much, and I was so much inscribed within this other world of, I don't know, Dostoevsky, you know, various forms of rock music, art, and so on, you know. The kind of things you... When I was 11 and 12, I was just like... What is <laughs> this offering me? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was yeah. pointless. Yeah. And also, I had a strong dislike for any institutional arrangements, of, you know, and which I wanted to, in some way, maintain and try to as much as I could. So I didn't actually uh, do any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that earlier period, but I continued on that sort of trajectory. So, you know, to the, the uh, so the uh, the irony maybe, or the or the or the, or the consistency perhaps <laughs> of a project like the one on Badiou, and you know, uh, and Plato on the question of education is that it actually there is a sort of a, an attempt to give uh, coherent and perhaps systematic, I don't know, or at least rigorous attempt to sort of. Um, turn that anxiety, antagonism and other orientation into something that could, could demonstrate the veracity of that, I guess you could say. So, so that's why the book became what it became. You know, I didn't really, I don't really have a fascination for education. Mm-hmm. I don't, to be honest, I'm just frank and well, you know, I'm already unemployable, so I'm not going to say something to toss about it in, this, in, in that sense. Right. That, 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 is, that, that, that we're all meant to um, concern ourselves with it. Yes, but yes. I don't think it does... And shouldn't do most of the things it's credited with doing. That's that's the point. And uh, you know, and I'm not the first person to say this. There's been a long discussion about that. It actually can actually do things which are worse, not better. Yes. And the assumption that it always is, the assumption that it does good is part of the problematic of what I wanted to investigate. Yes, and that it does good, irrespective of its of, of its content or its definition. That Absolutely. it is just generally a good thing that that's we need right. we need that's more right. of, like to that's quantitatively right. increase the amount of exactly. education. Exactly, yeah. that's the answer to everything. Yeah. Whenever yeah. there's a crisis or a problem or something, someone does right. something. Right. When footballers are raping women, for instance, yes. they, need to be, they need to be educated. Terrorism, they, education. Yeah, like, yeah. The incredible uh, traducing of the, of the idea of education yes. treated in that way. Yes. And that is more generalised than you know, just those instances, which is the problem. Certainly. You know, these are just examples of idiots saying idiotic things you wouldn't care, but it's actually a general understanding of what education is. But the, the, the thing about it is that education is fundamentally a good. Yes. And that's why, essentially, everyone who peddles education these days, from Cisco to Microsoft to UNESCO yeah. to the um, world, um, what's it called? The World Innovation Summit on Education, which they hold, oh, hold every year in Qatar, with the, with the beautiful acronym WISE, uh-huh, uh-huh. which is attended by everybody. Yeah, in the this shadow of slaves and. <laughs> yes, yes. NGOs, big corporations, they all roll up in mm-hmm. Qatar every year to attend the WISE Summit. And as you point out, in the shadow of the slave state that it essentially is. And in fact, I was just over there, and I've, I've written this in, a, in papers before, and I was wondering if the, 
you know. <laughs> it like my passport would, would um, go off. <laughs> you know, it such, such things. Like, so I was stuck there for 24 hours. So anyway. So but you were you you're in the airport, right? Like no, you were just no, no. All no, no, oh, right. Have to go through immigration. Yeah. Hotel, so yeah. Like, right. But, but you know, of course, you know, that's to flatter yourself. But, <laughs> but so, so that, that's the sort of the question is that you know. Um, so the question is then, okay, yes. So the reason that everyone and essentially the reason that education is now correlated essentially to the market to create good market subjects, you know, job ready and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's that we right. All know and, Universities use that as their slogans and promote that to sell yeah, themselves yeah. and so on. The reason you get away with that correlation between a particular sort of, I guess, uh, fundamentalist economic system and and, um, and and education is because it's presumed to be good. So whatever you're giving as education must be good because education is good. So the question then becomes, okay, fine, I'm not going to say education is bad. I'm, I'd say it's corrupt in the sense that those people are selling it. Yes, but education itself is good. So we must, we must establish then what is the good of education. Indeed, start there because if you start there and you can establish the good of education, which must be establishable in the Platonic sense. Don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. If we can establish it like that, then it must be good despite its usability or sellability by this particular context or framework or determination or. You know, whatever it is in the last instance, let's say. You know. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. So if we can, because that means that what we have is education. They can't be reduced to the way we sell education today. So there must be a good, a good of it beyond or beneath or without that connection. And if you can establish that, then you can establish the possibilities of education not being correlated to that system. Yes. And therefore, something beyond that, and it can be the possible way out from being stuck within that framework. But it's not a question of utility then either. No. Because the whole point is that you don't want to enter into debates about the utility of education. I know mine's better than yours. I know this this one's better than that. Because once you're into that framework, you both share a knowledge of what this thing is, which is what you find in the contemporary situation over the last 40 or 50 years. Of course, coincident with the sort of flowering of the neoliberal sort of paradigm, as as it's always called, but really it's just capitalism. Yes, yes. You know, the neoliberal thing is a way, in a certain sense, to get people to avoid having to speak about capital, you know, which is sort of interesting. Uh, Yeah, as as Badiou says, right? Like, you you treat it like it's, as if it's this object of fascination, as if it's this radically different kind of capitalism, where Badiou's just like, no, it's it's capitalism, right? We were doing, we're doing to um, refugees in in Europe what we were doing to to refugees in the in the 1930s or in the yeah or in the 1890s or, or yeah after the, or yeah. after the second world war or etc yeah I mean, yeah I mean look at the, the sort of the, the structure of the economic framework and the stratification and so on it certainly looks like the 1890s in, yeah. in many respects yeah. you know not all and, and, and there are other things which you could say are, are, I don't know better Something's better, something's worse. But I mean, that the framework of better and better of worse is itself a, a sort of a, a relative measure and not one in the sense that we're talking about. But the idea is that you can establish the good of education beyond those things and it's not precisely reducible to, you know, this sort of framework in, in which it is, it, it is given. And that's the point of that. So that makes it possible to think it again in an entirely new way. And so it's not the enemy, not the problem as such, but the way out from within this situation itself. Which treats it as such and sells it as such and tells us this is what it is and so on and so on. The problem, ultimately, though, of the sort of 
correlation of, say, education or, you know, or anything else in it, but education particularly to the logic of capital, if you want to, to use that phrase, is that one of the things about the contemporary understanding of capitalism, particularly its sort of centrality in the notion of the market, is that it's off limits to thought. Yes. You know, this is one of, I guess, the Hayekian thing. And, you know, Hayek was sort of one of the, I guess, architects of what becomes neoliberalism around the time of the, the, the 40s, you know, the Mount Pelerin Society, yes. that sort of stuff. Yes. Where it becomes, and for these guys, it was an educational project, which is interesting. Particularly for Hayek, yeah. Yeah. They they, they knew the necessity of establishing this way Mm. of orienting us to our present and and to the future. As an educational project, it must be learned. We must go out there and proselytise it. We must put it in schools. So so the the early coterie businessmen and so on uh, enlisted academics and academics and so on and so on and expanded out. And and you get get freedom, you get the Chicago School, you get the imposition of that into various third world countries as the new economic paradigm so on and so on you know as Friedman said you know when you have a crisis what people people look around for an idea our job was to make sure there was an idea ready and waiting to be taken up and that's sort of you know that's sort of how that you know and and they they did a lot of work and they and they uh, did a lot of militant activity you could say to establish that certainly but but but, but back to the point of the market is that it's sold as, a, as the unthinkable, right? So what we have at the heart of our situation is something which is off limits to thought, yes. something unknowable as such. The interesting thing about that is it sort of chimes with a certain classical metaphysics in some way, that you know, there is this final knowledge, the knowledge of God, or what God is or God as such, which we can't ever know, but we're all inscribed within that sort of um, um, framework itself, you know, this sort of, um, we, we, know what, we know what can't be known. Ultimately, and that's sort of a weird conceit to be able to say, "No, I know what can't be known." Yes, and that's sort of the framework of, the, of how the market works within contemporary capitalism. And so, if you correlate the question, if you correlate education to that sort of framework, then you know that education must be transmitting this idea or this notion that there is knowledge that we cannot know, that there's something that ha- that that organises us, that we all must be oriented to, that in fact, our, almost our existence as something in the world rather than just a being, if you like depends upon yes. being counted by that thing as something, yet it itself is unknowable to us. And so education is, in, in this context, transmitting to everyone that there, is a no, you know, that, that there is a knowledge that exists of what can't be known and of what must not be known. So education is actually teaching you that you, that you must not know something, you know, <laughs> when you break it right down to the basics. You know, of course, they're always saying, you know, there's new knowledge of this, blah, 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 but that's all inscribed in that framework. That new knowledge, you know, that, or, or innovation, yeah, or yeah. That, as they like to call it these days and so on, can go on within that framework, but you can never innovate such that that systematic framework which gives you what it is um, uh, to know of knowledge can itself be done with. No. That's the impossible knowledge. Yes. You cannot know another way to do these things. And that is, and, and education then functions as what makes that impossibility real and true and the orientation for all knowledge that there is to come, right? And that's where, that's the level at which rethinking the question of education as such can undo that predicament, that double bind that we're in. And so that's what, you know, ultimately thinking about it in the contemporary sense I'm aiming at, but I found 
the play, the, these discussions were essentially all in Plato, if you, if you could look yes, at it from yes. that perspective, that there was always a question. I mean, the, the central antagonism of the dialogues is the question of education. Every single one is an antagonism. The antagonism is being played out by what is understood as education in that situation, which is you know, dominated essentially by the sophistic teachers of wisdom, who, as Plato points out, are essentially giving to the um, giving giving um, everyone the knowledge they need to know to get along in the city as it is, right? Yes. That way. And of course, along comes this clown Socrates who doesn't orient himself to the city in the same way. He doesn't have an interest in the things that people in the city have an interest in. He can't get him on money. He doesn't really care about his status. Mm. You know, he doesn't. You know, he, he, he's you know he's wedded to the idea of being an Athenian, but he's not going to. Um, uh, carry on slavishly in regard to that um, um, notion of, of, of citizenry or whatever it is. You know, you, you know what he does. He, he goes against. You know, uh, he doesn't sanction the generals who have um, who uh, were sort of responsible for the, the fleet disaster, like others do. You know, he doesn't. And he, he does these several things, which goes against the temper of the times, if you like, or the knowledge which is brought to bear about what you can and can't do. And he puts that into question itself, and he com- he commits to doing that. He not only puts it into question like he's some wanky debater, <laughs> like we talk about all the time. Yeah, yeah. Debate this, debate that. I mean, what a load of shit. He commits himself to body on the line in his own name to not doing that thing, but to thinking that thing again in a way which would be rational and, co- and, and coherent and would make sense, if you like, to everyone, if that could be. Sh- you know, demonstrated to be a way to inquire into these things. So he's, uh, and you know, he's treated like in the dialogue, he's, you know, what he said explicitly at the trial, which, you know, the charges are brought by Anatus, Melitus and Lycon, which Plato makes a point of telling us are essentially representatives of all the main interests of the city, the businessmen, the men of the law courts, the poet, the, you know, the poetic tradition, you know, all these things. So you can think about that contemporary day media, you know, celebrities, yeah. the politicians, yeah. the guys who run the corporations. Yeah. These three guys represent their interests, right? And they prosecute this figure who doesn't have any of those interests. Yes. Right? Or is not can't be sold in relation or, or can't be instrumentalized in relation to those interests, right? And so that, 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 that's where he's, he is. And he gets Anatus to say, yes, Socrates, you're the only figure in the city who does not doesn't educate. educate right? yeah. So he's singled yeah. out. He's yeah. absolutely yeah. singular. And so you can start to think about how this sort of weird singular figure operates within the city. What is he in terms of the knowledge of the city? Well, he exists, he's there, they all know it, he's doing something. They're not always sure what it is, they know it's annoying, they don't like it, you know, they're <laughs> down for it. Yeah. They, and they say, look, man, we have to, you know, well, they, they, they kill him. They think if they kill the body, that they get rid of the idea and so on, which, of course, is the subject of the last, you know, the last dialogue. Not the last dialogue with Plato, but the last dialogue in which Socrates is alive officially. But the the feeder, the fighter, yeah. yeah. And, and Plato, he says, you know, don't worry about me. Concern yourself with what's at stake. That's what will persist. So the city, of course, makes the usual mistake, um, correlating the body to the body of knowledge. You know, as if they're the same thing. Like yes. We do today, bodies and languages, as Benjamin says. Yes, yes. Language. But no, there's this, there's this other thing which insists and, and continues. The idea, the, the yeah, idea, yeah. Within, you know, and, but again, it's not that idea thing. No, it's no. Socrates has made that manifest and alive within the city by orienting himself to that and, 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 and doing it. 
Yeah, it's it it's not a hyper uranium thing like like in the world the world above the clouds that persist, right? Like it can be picked up and pursued, you know, again by by others by Plato actually most most well, significant right. obviously. I mean, like, that's right. Well, I mean, that, as I sort of say, I'll put it in those terms. I mean, what is the corpus? It's a body. It's a body of work. It's of work. The dialogues. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the body of Socrates is gone. The yes. idea insists Plato creates a new body. It, that idea. In the sense of, and, and in the sense also of Badgie's later, um, the logics of worlds sort of conception of the of, of a body that it is, sure. it, it, it yeah, is, yeah, it yeah. is like a body of truth, right? Yeah, as well, that's yeah. right. That's right. Mm. I mean, Badgie got that off minute because I read that book. <laughs> you did too before logics of worlds. Sorry. No, no, no. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's the, that's the idea. So you know, and, and so you consider those things that were already animated in, 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 in the Platonic dialogues. If yes. You, if you can sort of. Bring, bring yourself to think about it in like there is something within the um, sophistic city which shows itself to insist but which for it must not exist there's a sort of as you, know, as you, you put there there's this sort of you know imminent void yes circulating in the city yes you know this is a weird little hazard running around which, which, they, which they know about to get rid of but they don't know what the hazard itself marks right there's something that Socrates it's possible if you follow Socrates to bring to bear on the city itself that that, that very thing is what the city makes impossible to know. That's the absolute must not be known in order that the city continues to know in the way that it does. Right. And it's that sort of dialectic between that um, abs- what, what must absolutely be not known and the fact that that not known can be known if there is another orientation to that very knowledge itself which says it can't be known. Right? That's sort of... Right. No. No. Excellent. So this is this is uh, what brings you to the question of education. Like as you said, you don't really give a shit about education per se, except insofar as it is as as you see it as something like a site. So on the one hand, it's completely um, uh, not not just not just corrupted, but the idea of um, I mean, it is it is corrupt. But your point would be. It, it completely determines it as, as a good, it, with a small g, that's in, in the sense of the way Lacan talks about the, the service of goods, right? Like, yeah. so this is a good, we know it's a good, it has to circulate, it has a certain price on, on the yeah. market, it has a certain utility um, that can be determined by those same market logics and, and, and so forth. But at the same time, even in order to pursue those kind of market goals or whatever, or creating flexible, adaptable subjects or innovation or, or allowing, uh, you know, that there'd be new ways of generating revenue or, or of yeah. generating wealth, that within that, even, even within a system that is geared towards nothing else but producing, like you could say, docile subjects of capitalism or whatever, there's something in the discourse that keeps insisting, or you, you talk in, in some of your later work about um, the... De- the dependency of even the most kind of rebarbative neoliberal discourse on certain philosophical notions like platonic notions or even concepts in, in, in Marx and St. Paul, in, in Freud and Lacan, uh, a need to kind of reference these things, but in the way of something like an imminent void, like almost like the way maybe in a sophistic city, a city where there is, as you say, but in uh, an education by truth, there is no education that is not sophistic. It's like the sophists still have to have this kind of parodic relationship to sophist to philosophy, yes. even though philosophy is precisely what cannot be known. It's just that insistent, insistent voice. It's really interesting. Um, 
But actually, before we go into um, further further questions around um, education and Plato, and I want to ask you about your, your relationship to Marx and St. Paul. Also, at some point, we'll talk about Rontier and, and Bourdieu. But I actually wanted to come back to the beginning of your last answer around uh, the question of pop music, right? Uh, because, or, or I, I mean, sorry, it's it's appalling for me to call the Clash pop. Um, but you, but um, but. What I mean is, uh, I have a friend. Um, her, her name's uh, Anwen Crawford, and she's uh, last year she she put out a, a little uh, book on on uh, the band Hole, a, a band from the nineties, and their and their album Live Through This. And at the time she was writing it, she and I were talking about the fact that um, for uh, working class kids, like again and again, I I actually don't know anyone. Um, who isn't from a middle class background, who didn't get their kind of first encounter with um, politics, with art, often from music. So Anwin and I were talking about, you know, the, the Manic Street Preachers and their incredibly, like, uh, the constant kind of references to the Situationists, to, you know, um, even even to old forms of um, working class solidarity. Like they, they have a song, a design for a life that begins with the, begins with the incredibly un-rock and roll line, like libraries gave us power. And it's a, it's a lament for um, kind of workers' education centers that were that were then destroyed under under capitalism and, and, and so forth. And I yeah, I, I suppose and also deliberately, right? This is one of the interesting things about Oh that they were destroyed deliberately. Yes, yes. Because in the nineteenth century this is you know particularly things about Britain where sort of yes. leads the charge and of course we are a derivative of that. Certainly. Yeah. That, you know, of course workers self had self educated, yes. organized yes. and militantly so and were and, and were keen to protect the very way they went about doing these things, right? And this is where the education in our contemporary sense really um, uh, begins, right? Because there was constant debate in the 19th century, yep. precisely during industrialisation and the rise of capital and the, and, and the rise of the free market as the determining logic for almost all decisions, right? Yes. For, well, at least across the economic and the, and, and the social front, you know, um, generally. But there was still, of course, that sort of Victorian pseudo-Christian moralism which, which, which went along together. And so one of the one of the difficulties for uh, uh, the the sort of the idea of state education was sort of how to marry this sort of moralism with this you know uh, market 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 logic sort of becoming predominant. But anyway, the, the working class were very very aware um, that any move towards state based education, because most of it's in the hands of the churches, right? Who yes. Most of Sunday schools, there'll be more, and so on and so on. Or the private institutions which educated the rich. They didn't need educating for anything in particular. Just, no. just love. Really, the, the education of the rich for a long time, and maybe still now, I don't know, uh, was always to retroactively justify the fact that they were rich. Certainly, so certainly, you, that's you right. Educate your kids there, they grow up in their culture and have references and can speak and articulate and so on. So that then it looks like, like a reverse meritocracy. This is why meritocracy becomes a thing in a way, because so you educate your kids so that they are educated, then that justifies the fact that you've always been rich. That they had those privileges to begin with, indeed, yes. Don't be middle class thinking if you get educated, that's the way to wealth. Yeah, because they believe the ideology of meritocracy, they think. But it's us about because they don't actually know that they're imitating the aristocratic which it's always their stupid downfall. But we have (laughs) the same thing today. Very much so. And that's why, but now, of course, we have capitalism and nothing else, and it can sell itself as good that it's doing that, right? That's what's good for everybody. They get educated so they can go and buy a house in the suburbs and a BMW or whatever it yeah. might be. Because that's what, what does it mean to be job ready? What does it mean to be employable? It means you can start buying goods, right? 
doesn't be anything else. And even better if you've got this uh, patina of sophistication or whatever by which you can retroactively justify Absolutely. the privileges yeah, you either already have or hope exactly. to obtain. Yeah, yeah So yeah, in the 19th century, this is the whole thing. It was a battleground around these things. And many, many parts of the working class were absolutely adamant they didn't want their kids to go to what became a state-based education system in the late 19th century. You know, and figured, like one of the key figures, um, J.K. Shuttleworth, who was the head of the Privy Council, sort of um, charged by the Privy Council to be in charge of establishing a state-based educational system across Britain, was absolutely hated the working class he, the, you know, the, he hated the Chartist movement, a bunch mm. of armed monsters, the trade unions were idiots who didn't know anything about their own best interests, the Luddites, you know, but so on and so on, <laughs> railed against them all. And, he was, and, and, and you know, he, his hope was that a state-based education system would teach the working class what they need to know about their, about their orientation to the market, because that would be the only thing which would, you know, which would give them any, any coherency, which would save them from themselves, and which would also ensure the smooth running of the state. And he says these things, not exactly in those words, but in, in fact in more frank terms yeah, right. than I just said, right. straight up and straight out. Yes. Right? And he's a very important dude, and he's charged with establishing it, and he does essentially, right? He also corresponded with Charlotte Bronte. It's very weird. But right. I she says some funny things about his character in, in a letter, but I can't huh. remember the details. Huh. That, no, that's what I said. And so, but interesting, that discourse, you know, uh, becomes sort of one which, of course, informs the rise and rise of state education. And the working class essentially come, in board, come on board through various means, you know, when the trade unions become the main body that represents, represents the workers, they're sort of more interested in reform and, amen- and making themselves amenable to the state. You know the history of yeah, taking between the trade unions and other parts of the left and mm. all that sort of stuff. And so it eventually becomes this major thing, you know, it eventually becomes this compulsory state school that we've got today. But in that, it hasn't left behind all that history. It hasn't left behind that orientation. And, and, and while at certain points you know, there, there might, you might appear to be an antagonism between state-based systems and you know, free market capitalism, essentially what the 20th century has shown us is the solidification of the link between those two things. Not at all some sort of check and balance, if you like. You know? A state education is not giving you the necessary means to think your situation under capitalism at all. It's giving you the necessary means to operate within it, yeah. perhaps to succeed, perhaps to fail, which, which means to become an exploiter or remain as an exploiter, basically. Right. All it means. And so out of that history, which was absolutely um, antagonistic by many in the working class areas already, we've got, you know, we, we, we have this thing where we're all, all within it and all under it now, and it is the good, and it is the only form of the good in which this good is. You know, perpetrated now, essentially. You know. Yeah, there will be no there will be no space outside of capital, and that's what you're saying about Shuttleworth. That it's a it's an integrative move. It looks like it's like you will be so there will be no space that is not dominated by capital. Like we can't have the working class doing their own thing, no, especially not. doing even and especially if there might be the kind of thing Roncia talks about in Proletarian Nights of of these kind of like <laughs> after the factory, you're you're sort of educating yourself in in a, in a way independent from the state. Um, so bring you under the thumb of the state, but but which is also that of the market, and that's why you're rejecting the the kind of line of of any um, of the social of uh, I, I suppose broadly social democratic leftism that conceives of you know if you shore up the you shore up the powers of the state against the kind of um, uh, universal acid of the market, right? But 
that leads to but first there's a fundamental contradiction because you're saying uh, as as is also clear in in Hayek that if the state has any role like Hayek is ideologically um, committed to opposing the state like a not of the rules but he's not afraid to bring it out when it's about um, functions. Police functions, military functions, yeah. and techniques, which he also, yes. maybe like Shuttleworth, is, is really open about saying you need, um, if in order to have um, neoliberalism work, we need to transform the population. Like there's yeah. even the kind, of, the kind of thing that appalls a certain kind of That's conservative right. where they're like, oh, the Maoists with their desire yeah. to transform human nature. It's like, no, we need to transform human yeah. nature. We need to, we need to get, and, and that's one of the functions of education, like Absolutely. get rid of any uh, vestige of resistance that won't make that's your market right. subject to it's it. Like when you've got, I mean, in, in a way, if you've got Hayek's end of history stuff, which I don't, you know, it's, it's, and I don't understand like this is whole totalizing I mean, I think capitalism is a totalizing logic, but obviously right. the, the world's not totalized by it as such. No. That's the trend and the trajectory and the dominant formation. Yes. Everything is moving towards that deliberately, not not naturally, like <laughs> they like to sell it to us. No. You know, and this is one of the other things you know, always banging on about, as you said, adaptable and flexible, but yes. none of us says to what? No, indeed, it's indeed. It's that we know to what. Yes. That's all there is, you know, to... To, to the demands of capital. But understood as nature, though. Yeah, like, not as yeah. That's right. Like it, it, that's what, I mean, we're tending toward that in our mm. When we finally get that end of the end of the end of uh, history thing, we'll be in our proper proper state sort of thing. Yeah, that, yes. that sort of notion. But yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was precisely an educated project. But education is not transmission. Education is, yes, transmission, but it's, it is, as you say, fundamentally transformation. And that's the point. I mean, a transformation that they speak of transformation in that sense. I think I like. I don't have yes, that yes, sure. At, at all, it, it is absolutely about transformation. But of course, the difference is, and you can even you know the difference is, you know, and, and, and the difference is uh, for the good or for all or for justice or toward you know in, in a just sense or not. Yeah. Or towards something else which is fundamentally unjust. And of course, the thing to move towards more and more capitalism, which is essentially, of course, a, a, a winner v loser system, right? Indeed. And it's, and it's fundamentally exploitative in, in every single action. It's exploiting the idea of education right now, as you pointed out, by using it in this way. Capitalism is not creative or inventive, it's, it's innovative, but that innovation is new ways to exploit. Yes. And so any knowledge which furthers that is fine. Any new knowledge about how ways to exploit is totally fine. Entirely necessary, but as I said before, any any knowledge which undoes capital as such is impossible, right? Unthinkable. Yes. And we, but that again, it's not unthinkable by nature. It's unthinkable because we make it so through the very educational framework which we transmit knowledge. So, in a weird way, capitalism has taken transformation out of education and makes it almost a form of pure transmission. Yes. Which is part of the problem. And it's interesting, it's ironic in a way, because it's a very, de- 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 very deliberate construction of this thing, particularly when people became conscious of it as a thing that can be constructed. And maybe Marx gave them a lot of ammunition in that regard, in fact, by pointing out what this goddamn thing was. Um, you know, it, 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 people started to consciously um, develop systems for the furtherance of that, right? But we've got to the stage where now that the knowledge of that is, is, is knowledge as such. And that's, again, that's, that's the, keep coming back to the same, very same problem. You know, that's what education names and we don't have one. 
Or as Plato said, we have a queer sort of education. <laughs> or, you know, any time education becomes corrupt, it's a duty of everybody to, to get back to work and start again sort of thing. And that's just what I want to expose in that book and other ongoing sort of analysis of this is that, you know, the presumption to know what education is is where the problem lies. And if you can demonstrate that they don't know what it is they're talking about, then they can't be educa- educators, that can't be an education. We need to begin again. We need to recommence. Yes. So it's that sort of coming in from underneath, I guess, sort of idea. Hmm. I want to take up this uh, notion of, of that which is prescribed as unknowable or unthinkable in relation to education. I want to do so um, particularly in relation to your the, the critique I think you have of many ideas within education and I suppose I suppose philosophy generally like within educational discourse that would align themselves with a kind of radical like like that has um, explicitly progressive or radical agendas so the, the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about I suppose would be uh, coming from a doxer of a generalized constructivism where you know you have, you have, have this idea um, like uh, all Discourses are products of certain kind of of social systems or a, hegem- a hegemonic class within a within a system. So you get you get people trying to expose, I suppose, in a in a sociological sense. I'm thinking I'm thinking of Bourdieu, um, the the role education plays in the reproduction of of existing social inequalities and. Um, and, and so forth. Now, you and I have been have been talking to some extent in those terms, as in as in we we also think that that clearly education plays a role in the in the reproduction of society as it is, or the furtherance of capital. But I think one of the things that is important about the, your work is that you also have a criticism of these kind of um, sort of soi-disant radical educations, and and it seems to me that it's around the question of of, I suppose, in Baduin terms, the distinction between knowledge and truth. Um, yeah, can you, can yeah. you say something about that? Well, I guess I mean, in a general sense, this is what I'm saying. I mean, one of the interesting things about, I mean, you know, it's not to discredit any of the work that those guys do. I mean, sure. It's, it's absolutely critically important. And you can't really think about things in, in a further way without necessarily that being uh, exposed and, and demonstrated in the first instance. I mean, you know, you mentioned before Rancière's book on ignorant school maths, which is essentially not so much about Jacotot, but the intervention into the contemporary French situation, which was sort of polarised between Jean-Claude Milner's idea of the Republican school, you know, yeah. the Republican school gets the same education, whatever that might be. And, and kind of Bourdieu, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Passeran's book about uh, reproduction, basically. Yeah. That, you know, they were invited to the Elysee at that time, weren't they? That, like, yeah, like they by, by, by Mitterrand, uh, yeah. Seriously, seriously, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's Rotti's intervention is into that, as, and and you know he has these things to say about both of them, and you know yeah, what he has to say about Bourdieu is that essentially Bourdieu sort of accepts the idea that working class don't actually have, uh, um, uh, you know, that don't actually have um, something something that themselves are autonomous that. Um, is, is sort of self-sustaining in some way. That's been, you know, their very idea of culture has been put there by, by somebody else in the first instance, you know, and that's part of, that's the sort of problem. You know. 
So, but anyway, his point is to intervene to both of those. But the interesting about Monsieur's thing is that, like, it's a very classical Mao's position that both of these positions are worse, if you like. Yes. But, but, but because they share a fundamental predicate in, rega- in regards to what's at stake, you know. And that's a classical, um, I mean, a very classic sort of inter- interventionary thing. And that's what's very interesting, I think, about that way Ranciere does that. As much as the details, which, which are very, uh, have, you know, have a historical context, but are also very situated in that, in that, milieu, in that framework. But we, in general, have this problem where we think that things, you know, well, things oppose themselves to each other, right? But essentially they do share, share the same predicate in regard to the thing which they're opposed over. And that is where the, the like, that's the philosophical intervention is not so much to take it one side of the debate or a, Yes. But to go, well, look, interestingly, you both agree on this fundamental basis for, for the debate sort of thing or for the discussion. So you're not as opposed as you think you are. Perhaps we need to look there for where the problem lies. You, know, you think about contemporary politics, you've got these two parties, but essentially, you know, almost everything is shared these days. They, they share a fundamental commitment to what it is they think um, a parliamentary democracy should look like, right? Yeah, indeed, so absolutely. Look at it the same way. So, you know, one of the interesting things, I mean, uh, the, 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 the criticisms, I guess, which have arisen, like, you know, yeah, you use the term postmodernism, but that sort of covers a whole multitude of sins and, and, and includes people that should probably be included into it. But Agreed, yeah. what you've got is this sort of, you know, general this sort of relativistic position. Yes. That says, look, those things like truth, good, justice, whatever, are, you know, are essentially unthinkable. They're, they're, they're you know, they're, they're not there for us to think. It's impossible for us to think. Even if they are anything... You know, there's no way you can actually um, um, get a grip on them. And, and essentially, they've operated in terms of uh, uh, authority. You know, they've been used to say, you know, we know the truth, therefore we should tell you what to do. Yes. <clears throat> so that sort of critique has done a couple of things. It's posited something which is often, which, which, which is really unthinkable for us. Yes. No one can think these things because they are just somebody saying what they are and backing them up in sort of, you know, with, with material um, forms of power or authority or religion or history, whatever it might be, to say this is the thing, right? So they sort of pointed out something which is unthinkable as well. And of course, on the other side, you've got contemporary logic of capital pointing out that the market is unthinkable. Yes. So they both predicate their arguments on some idea of the unthinkable. And there might be different unthinkables, but still the idea that there is something off limits to our thought, right? So that's, that's the problem with those, with those opposing discourses. The sort of postmodernist one, you could say, is opposed in many ways to the contemporary capitalist framework, right? It's always criticising it for, you know, or you know, not, not, not counting this or not including that or excluding yeah. that or whatever it might no, be. Exclusion's the right word. Very often yeah. about, like, excluding this or that or the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it becomes all about let me in too. That's yes, that's yes, indeed. The worst aspect of it is include me, include me. Yes, you yes. Know, the discourse of inclusion is everywhere, right? Yeah. Which is, I've always found quite stupid because, like, include into what? But indeed. Again, into what? What is this thing you're presuming? Yes. That you want, we all should be included into. Yes. And then, of course, there, then there is the idea of speaking for those who you identify as somehow excluded and therefore as victims and therefore as missing out, and then to have them be included. Like, what, a, what an interesting position you're occupying to be the, 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 the spokespeople for that, for, the, for that sort of movement and so on, without, again, attending to what it is necessarily that these different positions might have on their, in their own terms, how they might be um, better served to not be in, yes. how they might be sites of possible um, overturning of the very logic of, of, of needing to be in. 
that sort of thing, you know. That's right. Based for a new configuration itself. But it's all correlated with the fact that there is no possibility to orient yourself otherwise to this situation except to be within it and to function precisely within it. So one interesting things like critics of education in the 60s and 70s oriented itself mostly around this sort of constructivist theme that essentially, you know, um, you needed to include up into the framework these aspects of these, you know, students from working class backgrounds or, you know, you know, ethnic backgrounds or gender, you need to include that into the framework and therefore expand it and make it better. They're presuming the state will, will can, is, is a sort of thing that, that, can, that, will, that will do this. Yes. Okay, so that's what it means to be included. It means to be brought into the state. Now, the problem is with that is, one of the problems with that is, of course, if the state is this thing, which actually needs to reproduce fundamental structural inequality for it to, to work, then sure, you might get various, well, this is what happens, various, yeah, capital doesn't really care where the exploiters come from. No. It doesn't care about their background as such, it doesn't no. care about their race or their gender as such. It just wants exploiters. And so you can be included up in that framework only to reproduce it, of course, in, uh, again and again and again, in this sort of new or innovative way. Where anybody can be the exploiter now. It hasn't totally worked out that way. We still have these other problems with those things, but you know, th th this is where these sort of two things come together for me. And so, and, and a lot of the work that the constructivists in their various stripes did, very in, in important analytical work, very detailed, but it actually, by doing all that work, it delivered over to the state a whole new set of means <laughs> by which to reproduce and, re and appropriate those backgrounds, those differences and so on, into it to continue to expand and become even more determined, even more dominant. I mean, once, it's, once, the, you know, once the contemporary discourse of the states are all about otherness and difference and inclusion and so on, or democracy or whatever, once it's saying that stuff, as this is what it is, like it's saying this is what education is, where do you go? Where you, do you turn? You know the battle is lost, right? That's right. I mean, it, it, and, and you, you know you haven't won it because you can see that in the situation itself, these weird things are being reproduced more and more intensely. But the ammunition has been given by the critiques as such. Why? Because my argument would be that the constructivist vision, generally speaking, the postmodernist vision, the relativist vision, agrees that there is no way to orient yourself to questions of the truth or the good or, or the just as such. That these things are not real. They're ideal, they're metaphysics, they're authoritarian, they belong to a sort of tradition, you know, like which which you know, which we must overcome at all costs. So they they made a category mistake by saying that truth could just as belong to some notions of authority or, or sovereignty. Instead of rethinking truth, good, justice as precisely impossible to be controlled or, or determined by an authority. Yes. Because they are universal, yes, i.e. for all. And if they are <laughs> wielded by a particularity, then of course they're not universal. They are the determination of that particular, right? So the universality of them is gone out of them. So you should commit yourself to universals precisely because they are the only things which cannot succumb to a, one form of particularity or another, one form of rule or other, one form of sovereignty or other. Such as yeah, such as that the sovereignty of, of capital, etc. I, I I think it's really it, it's it's really interesting that 
when you talk about this this demand for for ever greater inclusion, and of course we think you know there's not a there's not there's not an inherent problem. Yes, we want people to you know to have rights that other people yeah, do not have. Right. Like obviously, yeah. right? Like we're not just we're not just saying no. You know, like it's it's fine to have discrimination against yeah, us. Yeah, right. yeah. But I think you're I think you're absolutely right to, to point. Yeah, to a number of ironies around this that that I always think with a kind of when you get postmodern relativism coupled to a, a kind of um, identity politics. There's that, and, and you were talking about it as include me, in, in, include me. But there's the question of like. Uh, it, I, I think now it's even like we can include you as a kind of exclusion, as in we can give testimony to your excluded status yeah, yeah. as we include you, um, despite the fact that there will, st- despite the fact that that's predicated on the idea of it's like acknowledging your exclusion, i.e., that you come from a particular disadvantaged background yes, or whatever, yes, presumes yes. the persistence of that background, right? So I will acknowledge you as a as a uh, trans. A person, or I will acknowledge you as, you know, um, a, a, a black person from, or may, you know, maybe from the from the suburbs or something like that. But in doing that, acknowledging where as an inclusion, like I'm acknowledging you as that person, I acknowledge that that kind of disadvantage persists, like even at the point when I'm including you, a particular person who's escaped from the kind of worst fates of being in the the underclass and persecuted and so on. And I wonder, I wonder, you know, for instance, as well, to whom this demand for inclusion is um, is addressed that there becomes there becomes that question of, of you know surely surely when you demand inclusion you are always talking to the to the state and, and suggesting that what you cannot think is that which is invisible to the state that which That's is right. avoided. I mean those things work in something interesting well, not interesting but pathological ways because you know, one of the things that happens is that these things become, weirdly, these these identities become individualised, and so it becomes a matter of your identity where you, where you are positioned within the state. And it's essentially your individual problem yes. of, 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 you know, um, overcoming that particular position you're in because of the identity that you have. We love, you know, the fact that identities can move from one place to the other, but essentially it becomes a matter of your, your problem. When you point to this idea of, of, of backgrounds and so on, you know, you come out of a particular social milieu. What happens with the with the uh, emphasis on the identity, and therefore on the individual, is that the very social situation which constructs the, 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 this problem in the first place is just off, off. You know, it's out there somewhere. It's not part of the question as such. No, still unthinkable, Everything still untouched. Yes, yes. It's the way we treat anxiety as well, as I mentioned before. You know. Lacan points out anxiety doesn't lie. What does he mean? Yeah. You know, anxiety is precisely what it is, is what continues to point out that 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 there's a structural anomaly at work here. It's not just in the individual ego that the anxiety plays out. It's because in relation to structure, something is put into question, if you like, and it's felt in the subject. Yes. The way we treat anxiety, though, is precisely to try and um, put you know to have done with your anxiety. I mean, you have the anxiety, you present as an individual with anxiety, we treat you as an individual with anxiety, it must be your anxiety that's the problem, so we treat you, and therefore you occlude out any necessary thinking about the structure yeah. in which you're inscribed, from which, of which this anxiety is a symptom. Yes. You know, that's the way psychology today works on individuals and individuals alone, and helps to reproduce the very structured framework which makes them present with symptoms in the first place. Right? So the structure is always off the hook, the system's always off the hook. Yeah. He doesn't need to be considered as a producer of anxiety. The individual 
themselves because they haven't adapted properly, mm. not flexible mm. enough. Mm. In the old sense, their ego hasn't been adjusted such that it, you know, um, fits in with the American way of life, as Lacan calm. Yes. It's all sending the individual. This is the same thing in regard to the way education works on these differences in terms of identity, right? So it individualizes you if you do all these right things in regard to education and you can transcend that horrible background that you have and succeed within this framework. And if you do succeed, it shows that the background itself was nothing, was overcomable. It wasn't wasn't actually the problem. It was just a matter of your application to the way of the world and, 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 the way, and, and the way you've gone about it. Your hard so, work and devotion, even and especially if you continue to mention, because we like, you know, that American sort of redemption narrative, even sure, if you continue absolutely. to mention, you know, the harsh circumstances from which you came and thus triumphed, that's right? right like, that's right. I mean, and in fact, they become a badge of honor yeah. and almost necessary justification for the success and therefore must be reproduced and it that to continue to happen again, you know. As in we the inequality has to be... Horror, yes. Horror in order to show how good we are. Yes. Because some people can actually get out of those into what's supposedly a, a good life. Yeah. Right, you know, yeah. And have all those things. So, yeah, you get these weird, these weird sort of juxtapositions. But back to the sort of, uh, I guess, the philosophical... Yeah, 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 sure. Is that when you don't... When you can't commit to some other orientation of the situation to something other than the knowledge of the situation, something that holds despite a particular um, framework of knowledge or a particular epoch of knowledge or a particular you know, uh, situation of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, then all you have is the repetition and reproduction of that, of the, of that form of knowledge. Yes. And so if, if you already rule out that it's possible to commit to the, you know, a truth, and a truth would not be reducible to knowledge precisely because... What is true, A, is true for all. And so all have to be, um, it has to be something that each can participate in manifesting in for that world, not just those with knowledge or position vis-a-vis knowledge in a particular way. And it also upsets the very framework of knowledge because it points to something which knowledge itself can't know, which knowledge, which knowledge in the way we talk about is always trying to make sure it's impossible for us to know. So if you posit that at the beginning before you begin your you begin anything. If you say there's the market and it is unknowable to us as the knower of everything, or you know, not ideas of truth or justice or the good are, you know, uh, metaphysical fa- conceits or fantasies and are absolutely unknowable for us, then you've already circumscribed the possibilities that would adhere, you'd think, in what education is supposed to name. You know, creation, transformation, the new possibilities of subject and configurations. You know, new ways to organise society, which aim at precisely everyone. The, you know, at everyone in, in that in that place. We always say education for all and blah blah. Yeah, blah, yeah, yeah. Slogans and so on and so on. But if you have an education which is fundamentally correlated to a system like capitalism, which divides everybody into exploited and exploiter, then it can't be for all. Well, it's everyone gets educated, but it's not for all. It's for the few who become dominant in that situation, you get to, you know, be the means of exploitation, if you like. The education for everybody else is to make sure you stay inscribed within that in, in, in unequal framework. So sure, er- everyone must be educated, but educated in this fundamental disjunction. Or education itself is the very thing which makes it possible for the all to be inscribed within, within a, a collective framework in a way which is not subject to a fundamental inequality at its basis. So either you believe education for all is a fundamental egalitarian principle or you believe that 
the edu- there is no education for all per se, but there is education of all such that a fundamental inequality persists. Because it's not fucking natural. <laughs> None of this is natural. It's sold as natural, the normal way of things. You see all this time, people say, it's just human nature, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Even though they aren't saying that, they're recurring to sort of, you know, metaphysical ideas of, 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 of sort of natural tendency or whatever it might be. Yes. This is all we can do as a creatures we are, or some bollocks like that. Yeah. This world is precisely being made and remade every day, and education is one of the key ways. And in fact, weirdly, perhaps in the way that education is discussed today, more so than it has been for a while, more so than the media. You know, as long as a few kids, I've had to endlessly endure people's ridiculous carries on about what skill are you going to send your kid to? Oh, uh, uh, but uh. this topic never existed as a question when I was younger. No. And, but now it's everywhere, right? Everyone is supposedly researching this school and researching that school. But what do you want? From. I say, what do you want? Yes, yes. You know, what is it you want? And it also presumes that they know what they want, that they know what education is meant to provide, that they know that this school here with its website correlates to their <laughs> desire, which correlates to that end for their kid. But really, they're just within this really strange pathology about, you know, how do we reproduce things as they are, such that, and in particular, in the stratified sense, such that my kids will get to be in the position, essentially, of exploiter rather than exploited. Mm, did they... Genuine wish that parents have for their kids, right? If they answer your question, <laughs> well, your question honestly, that would be right. Yeah. That they that they don't sink below the net and become exploited, but they get the advantage in a competition, in a competition that they get to right. that they they have the means to survive and thrive better that's because right. we know the world's a jungle and exactly. you want to so give them every advantages. Stuff, yes, yes. You know, the whole whole lot of the discourse in education discourse these days is all about you know the, the rapidly changing society. Oh yeah, it's changing all the time. Into but. As if it's just changing, as if we aren't making those changes, as if well-educated people aren't behind those changes which will benefit well-educated people. <laughs> I'm doing quotation marks because what I'm saying is those who've bought the most expensive um, one on offer, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and of course they're well-educated because they went to the ones which we consider to be the, the schools of great education and so on and so on. Right? Well, who would be, and who by definition will, will be and will have been those... Um, who are most adaptable in the sense of most able to survive the changes in the environment large that they lead, that they bring about. Yeah. Because they have heaps of money, yeah. a great social position, uh, a, 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 an inscription into a milieu which is essentially unassailable at, at this point in time. So, of course, in fact, the education they get is nothing in regard to all that. In regard to it's content. Or, cake, yes, that's right, with aristocracy. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but the imitation of that across society is what's really interesting. Yes. To ordinary people, like you know, yes. you, know, uh, you know, doing normal jobs are now concerned. Should I send my kid to private school, or or the stratification within the state or public system itself? You know, is it a good state school? Yeah, yeah, is it yeah. A good public school? yeah, yeah. To have a good art program or something, <laughs> 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 yeah. something like that. You know, you've got to show your, you know, culture. And this is among this is among because yeah, you can imagine even like in our day that kind of more bourgeois families were were doing this kind of shopping for schools things, but not well, the average working class dude, average. right? And and the fact that it's 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 gone that far down, yeah, it's and even it's like we can't afford to send our kids to a, a private school, but we're still thinking is is it the right so, public yeah. school? Yeah. So, we're, so the public is is public school system is imitating the private school. Yes. Yes. Um, um, model. They, so, well, they think they are because the private schools aren't really doing that. 
they're getting on doing what they've always done. They have massive amounts of resources. They have incredible amount, you know, yeah. of everything, yeah. including public money, of course. Of course, and yeah. And they, they give, you know, they, they commit that to what, what it is that the project they're doing. The weird thing about the horrible situation in public schools forced, forced by continual, you know, a succession of governments who are, you know, as Marx pointed out, just the bloody administrative servants of capital. Yes, right? yes. Those. Let's not stop, you know, any other uh, other pretense. Who are who are bring, brought that? Who are bring the competitive commodity logic to bear into all things public? Right? We talked about this before. That the, it's not just that public things are being destroyed: public parks, public schools, public things by this notion of competition or by this notion of what some people call, you know, enclosure, a new form of enclosure. Yeah, of the of the commons, or of yeah, yeah, commons. yeah, yeah. But yeah. the very idea of the public must be educated. There. It's one of those things which can't appear. Within our, within right. Our yes. Anymore, yes. Right? So materially, you know, let's 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 disrupt that to use one of their favourite stupid. Terms, <laughs> right. But more importantly, over time, when there is no appearance of the public manifest anywhere, then the idea of the public, what the pub, what the notion of the public actually means, will also disappear. And it, their aim is to get rid of any idea of the public as a reference or an orientation for any sort of participation or action or, or, or collection or whatever, whatever, whatever. If you can get rid of that as an idea, that the public insists, insists exists, is something which must be, um, you know, which everything must be oriented to, then great. And that will be the success of this contemporary sort of educational discourse which is being pushed, pushed through governments, bureaucratised and so on and so on, right? And that universities and schools are happily, which, which is what gets me about the university, happily participating in with all their branding and advertising and you know endless changes to the curriculum to make it more sellable or amenable. yes yes endlessly oh what does the industry want oh tell us please we'll do whatever you want <laughs> all this nonsense right an incredible amount of it goes on as you know <coughs> and that's all they're doing they're contributing to the actual absolute demise of any thought of the collective let's put it that way yes right all you're going to have is always say individuals making their way, except it's going to be under a fundamentally determinative logic, which is which is which no individuals at all can really um, um, call their own in any in any, in any real sense. Yeah, and this is you know what what you know, said is as part of curriculum per se. It's it is what they used to call the hidden curriculum, except it's not hidden anymore. Yes, it's actually the selling point for education now. Definitely. I will get your kid into this part of, of the world. Right? That's right. That's what we're, get, we're supposing to guarantee. And, and we're going to, and as you point out, we're going to call that education. Therefore, we're going to exploit an older word, a word which was invented at a different time, which had another orientation, which still has some strange, weird purchase. Yeah. On the consciousness of, of, of society. Such that it's necessary to use it. Such that we yeah, need to yeah, keep on yeah. using it. Like the university kids use the word academy. Yes. No <laughs> the Platonic Academy. Any relationship to what the academy was, right? They still like to use it because it's, it's something which helps them sell what it is they need to sell. Yes. And what they need to sell is precisely that the, anything like the academy is absolutely impossible. So it's, it's that fundamental paradox in the discourse, mm. which is not just a linguistic thing it's a it's a material manifest thing and it's what produces the world as it goes the changes that we're all supposed to be adaptable to are being changed by that 
So it's part of the change, and it's going to change you to adapt to that change, which then might be reproduced <laughs> as the way of the world and so on, right? It's that sort of complex that we need to, you know, find a way to stand somewhere within, the, within it, because we're all in it. We need, we need to find somewhere within that to stand in order to unknow ourselves, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I think today we don't need to know ourselves. We need to unknow ourselves. That's yes. the project, right? Yes. But to do that, you need another orientation to what is knowledge. And that's what, you know, what's, what Badiou calls a truth is essentially, or a truth brings to bear in a situation, is the production of that other orientation and the collecting up of a possible, you know, new grouping or formation within that that can stand against all, all the assaults that will come to it and to show something else is possible, basically. You know? Not just possible, but makeable, doable. And again, because we are already always making and doing anyway, we aren't suffering the will of God or the, or the, or the machinations of nature. You know, no. We are doing this stuff, so we, we 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 can do it that way. Of course, we can do it another way, but it's not so easy to find that other orientation to the world that we're already in. No, I think that's the one thing that Bajou brings to this whole thing, which is so uh, interesting, is that he actually not just wants to say it exists; he wants to demonstrate that it is absolutely rational and fundamental that there is always such a point. That we can occupy, if you like, or that, or that from which we can begin to, you know, produce something else than, than what is here. As opposed to a, a, a merely kind of messianic, like, yeah. like hope. Or which you're saying it's down the end of the road, we yeah. go that way. Now we start from that and build. We don't go, yeah. oh yeah, we'll, we'll get there one day, like, you know. No, no, no. Uh, th- th- yeah, that's what I mean by the message. I mean, you, like you start with you start with axioms and 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 so forth. I, I want to ask you about this because, yeah, it 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 seems to me in a lot of what you're saying, especially um, in the critique of of the constructivist, that that in a sense, and and this reminds me of what Lacan says about um, uh, the as is the time the reign of university discourse. The problem, in a sense, is. Is as a problem for philosophy is the problem of knowledge of everything being taken uh, as if it fits within what we already know to be knowledge, and even with the ironies that that involves uh, when we talk about your critique of constructivism and so on, that you know that you can have. Um, you can do anything. You can do something that looks incredibly radical within the university, as long as yeah. as long as it doesn't point out any holes within knowledge. So I could be, you, you know, I, I've always found a sort of irony in this that I can trade as an expert in knowledge of oppression, right? Of knowledge of the evils of, of capital or whatever, right? But as long as that's knowledge, it's it, it seems to me that it's completely impotent. It will be treated like just any other discourse, like it's part of it's another commodity, it's part of adaptation. You can have you can have knowledge of of um of of in the same way you can have knowledge of Hebrew or, or or structural engineering, you can you can have knowledge of oppression studies insofar as that's another commodity, something else that can be shown. But what seems missing, what you're constantly fighting against is is that point where you go where you go, what our knowledge can't know, what it can't see. How do you point out the void of that? So from there I, I, I kind of want to ask you um ab- about uh Badiou and whether y- 
I suppose maybe maybe starting with something that we haven't talked about, but the quest- questions of mathematics and of rationality, because in, the, in the, the last thing you said was about how bad you doesn't just point to a hope, right? Like, or the possibility that one day there will be a better world, the kind of thing you occasionally get from, well, actually that you quite often get from, from uh, American Derridians and so forth. Like the, at the end of the paper, you explain why the world is fucked, and yet there remains like the horizon of a transcendable possibility but but what what interests you for in in Bajir and also plato is that you demonstrate why this beyond of of knowledge is not an ineffable that you can be pious about but is something that can be sort of constructed in thought and rationale and I, yeah i wanted to say say anything um that you have to say about that yeah reason that, 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 that's the key thing i mean this idea of ineffable of course allows you to get away with any other thing yeah you can get away with being good you can get away with being bad because precisely it's ineffable yeah, and so that's I mean that's part of one of the things that Badgie wants to do, in, you know, in, in relation to the very the very sort of iterations of metaphysics we've had over the period of time is that he's not anti-metaphysics. Metaphysics is the side of all things bad. Metaphysics, this, metaphysics like anything else, is a, a is a discursive arrangement which you know humans have been able to think in, in various times, right? And it's given orientation of currency to you know to their to their worlds and so on. So you know he, he just wants to say, look, I think Badgie's probably is very simple in a certain sense, right? Mm. So. Metaphysics has been predicated, and metaphysics is not like again. We should, you know, I'll talk. It depends what we're talking to, but most people know this. But you know, this whole anti-metaphysical turn and so on. You know, as Gilles Chatelet points out, yeah, great. They will posit anti-metaphysics, but it's always on a metaphysical position anyway. You know, they don't. You're not. You're not not doing metaphysics when you say there's no metaphysics or metaphysics is, is nonsense or whatever. But what Badgie does, you know, I think it's a simple project really. He's like, so all metaphysics hitherto, and therefore that which informs our thought in so many other respects, whether it's about what we know about knowledge, whether it's about our relationship to nature or science or whatever it might be, all these things, metaphysics underpins like our, our understanding of politics, our relation to the world, to each other, to, to the collective or the individual. It all has a metaphysical basis or framework in some point. Metaphysics is just trying to think those things at, at its most, I guess, abstracted or subtracted point, right? That's all metaphysics is, right? Yes. So Benji goes... Right, um, so we've had you know, various forts, forms of metaphysics and in one way or another they all have this sort of double aspect to them. It's all a meditation on you know, the question of the one and the one and the many or a meditation on the question of, of you know, finite the infinite, to put it in, in those sort of terms, right? So, so, and this is the way those things have been thinkable over time, you know, relative to the most rigorous forms of discourse that they've ever had available to them. They've thought the question of the one in this way or the question of the many in this way or the relation between one and the many in this way. Or well, they thought the question of the infinite in this way, the finite in this way, whatever, whatever it might be. So for him, it's like, okay, fine, that, that's how it's gone on. But then we had this scene in the 19th century where, you know, George Cantor comes up with this very completely other idea of the infinite, a completely new idea of the infinite. Yes. It has mathematical veracity. He makes the necessary demonstrations. They become proofs in that sort of sense. They're not uncontested. No one's saying that. But they stand within mathematics, this most rigorous and testable discourse, one which, one which doesn't have to worry about opinion, which is not constrained to the vicissitudes of language and its, and its, and its, and its, and its determinations and so on. And so in, in that sense must be one, you know, we can say it's the most rational way we have of accessing these questions. And so Kant already, you know, has this other, other, other idea of the infinite. Now that changes everything, right, in terms of how we think the one, the Kant, no, the very idea of the one or is an inconsistent concept now. We can't have that. So that messes with the idea of the relationship between the one and the many, or the parts and the wholes as well. 
the relationship parts and whole scheme element be what, it, what we thought it was this whole time and what has informed all our discourses in those sort of things. You know, so we need to rethink all the classical positions that have been bequeathed to us through metaphysics, through its relation to the question of the one or the question of the finite and the infinite. We need to rethink all those very things. So Badger is not throw out all those things. No. It's we, this mathematical discovery forces us to think the very, uh, uh, the very frameworks by which we come to know anything in a new way. Yes. And in terms of what it's invented for us. So there are infinite infinities, as, you know, the, the, the set theories invented as, as a way to deal with this sort of, you know, well, parts and holes and so on, ones and many's and so on and so on, right? No, don't go into the whole <laughs> no, no, indeed, no. indeed. Just trying to simplify those <laughs> projects. So it's like, okay, so rigorous mathematics has demonstrated that that the very notion of the infinite and finite we've been working with is no longer a consistent way to think about those things. We need to set to work to rethink all those things which matter to us, you know, as philosophers or in terms of thought or within you know, the very forms of social relation we have, where knowledge is insistent and determined. Yes, yes. So that's right. what he does. He sets to work to go. Okay, I'm going to rethink all those things under this new framework, which tells me, in the most rigorous way possible, in the most rational sense that we have, that the old ways are now, now end in inconsistencies or impasses. Which, of course, we've, you know, we've seen anyway, because they've always generated their own impasses at a certain point. Yeah. They've been intervening, like, for instance, if you, know, if you think about Kant, uh, Kant's notion of critique intervening on the sort of classical version of metaphysics. Yes. Kant does that, yes, and he isolates the point, and he does all the great things that he does, but he still does it within a certain Arist- Aristotelian logicist framework. Yes. In a way, belongs to the older sense of things. That's right. So he can't actually undo things in the way that he's hoped to undo. And he sort of realizes his own impasse at that sort of limit of like the limit of knowledge and so on and so on. He sort of realizes his own impasse in a certain sense. You could say that, right? Mm. Very, much, very much simplifying. But nevertheless, he's still entrained to that old conception of the infinite in trying to undo one of the problems of that old conception of the infinite finite relationship, right? So Badiou's saying, look, in mathematics, here's who, whose job it is really to think these questions of parts and wholes, their relationship, who's always dealing with the infinite and the finite, in a way which we can't get out in language, we can get out in the mathematical dis- forms of discourse. So we should listen to that. Yes. And therefore begin, begin again, like philosophy always does, begin again there. And that's really, I think, Bajie's project in the, in the most simple, simplified form, completely misunderstood in so many ways. You know, that oh, it's, it's neoclassicism. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, about that, but many, 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 many just assume that anyway. I mean, any, as you know, any mention of words like truth these days or the universal, you know, you're inherently an authoritarian, retrograde, <laughs> uh, you know. Possible bigot. What, like... you're, 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 you're a sexist, you're a... Uh, Misogynist, you're all those things. If you even dare, dare yeah, positivist. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. crypto religious. I, 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 I yeah, yeah right. that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, all those labels. Yeah, you're, 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 yeah. It, it's you know, of course, the connection between some sort of you know authoritarian rationalism and various state figures of whether they're Hitlerian or Stalinist or you know totalitarians, right? I mean, interesting correlation between some somehow wielding mathematics or some sort of authoritarian 
you know, form of discord which you can lord over everybody else. What is the actual so historical example of that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. It's not Hitler the mathematician. What are you talking about? Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yes, seduction. Um, yeah, there's, uh, as far as I know, I've had, I had a bit of a look yeah. around this at different times. I can't see any correlation between mathematicians and totalitarians. But, you know, you know in discourse these things are associated, that, if not in a rigorous way, but in a loose way. Yeah. Because mathematics is authoritarian, it tells everyone what must be. So bad you get treated like that, or well, just using mathematics to tell us what we need to think about art, what we need to think about love, and so on. It's completely not true. And, and, and so on, and, you know, and so on. But, you know, what Badger was just saying is, as a philosopher, I need to think about these classical categories, but I need to do them relative to what my time is saying is possible to think about these things. Yes. That's it, really. And, and thus I respond to the conditions, like, uh, to, to what Cantor did, to what, maybe, maybe to what, what Schoenberg did in, in music or Beckett exactly. in literature and so forth. I respond to all of these, yeah, things. Yeah. and I, I show their compossibility. I bring you them together. Them. Yeah, so yeah. You demonstrate yeah. And, and you do it, again, in the most coherent and rigorous, if you like, fashion, i.e., that is, you demonstrate the consistency of each move, if you like. You know, people don't like, like the word rigor sometimes. <laughs> you know. But that's all it really means. You demonstrate the consistency yes. of one move to the next and how those things can, can be seen to sort of work within the, within the framework as such, you know? But, and that, that's all he's doing. So that, that's what he's trying to demonstrate. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But these, and look, various discourses around in our wing pocket are all essentially dealing with, in their own fashions, and with, 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 in, in their own worlds, in their own milieus, with things which we can see from philosophy's perspective, which, you know, or, or, or these things generate themselves to be thought, and philosophy is that which comes to think them in that way. So it's not like something that's always hanging around waiting. It's actually composed in the composition itself of trying to think what our time's capable of in relation to, you know, to, in, in relation to this world, but from this point of orientation, which is not reducible to that world itself. Yes. It's in it as such, but it's not its knowledge of no. things. And that's the point. And so the philosophy of Badiou, in his own terms, arises precisely because... You know, because it's possible to compose here and now, you know, together these four different distinct conditions in such a way that we can see um, their sameness, if you like, at that level of, of, of abstraction. Mm. It's metaphysics then. Yes. It doesn't resolve from that at all. But it's not a classical metaphysics. It's not a, a Kantian critique of metaphysics. It's not a humanism, which sort of comes later on as like the new metaphysics, you know. Unavowed, if you like. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. But it is—it is is an avowed metaphysics, and I'm going to show you what it looks like. Which is exactly what Plato says, of course, in the Republic: is that we need to be able to show these things at the extent of their rationality. We need to demonstrate, not define. No. Again, and then what is education? This this thing, you know, this question is not a matter of definition. No. A matter of demonstration, such that it can be seen to be demonstrated (laughs) in different epochs, in different times under different conditions as what it is. So I'm saying that, you know, if we're going to have an idea of education day under contemporary capitalism, we have to be able to show that, that under, under, a different, under a different regime, so the sophistic regime that Plato um, articulates, that education there has, is the same as education here, you know, if, if, you know, if we can think about it with, you know, as not reducible to the capitalist sort of forms of discourse. There has to be a certain invariance which is demonstrable to exist and is not reducible to each of those epochs as such, right? Yeah. Something that has to insist of education, whatever the milieu, whatever the epoch it's inscribed within. 
And then you can say, if you can demonstrate that invariance, that existence despite the regimes of, of, of knowledge which would say what it is, then you've got some idea of education. It's actual, it's material, it's conceptual. That's what an idea is. Yes. It's not some airy-fairy thing we talked about before. No, that's right. So what is, the question of what is, which Socrates himself uses, yes. the three things he does, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is, a, is a demand for a demonstration, not a fucking definition. No, which is, which is all too easy to give Absolutely. in some ways. And will usually when, I mean, and this comes up in the Socratic dialogues as it would today in a contemporary treatise on, on education, you end up with a kind of um, conventional nostrums of the epoch. You get the, the blether, right? Like it's like you say what everyone knows in, in, in order to give the, the, the definition. Right. That's what. Well, and definitions can lend themselves precisely to status and authority and position and, and your interest in being something in the state. Right? Definitely. You know, that's, that's, that's the thing. Um, okay, can I ask you a question? Um, um, we, we won't go for it too much longer, but I'd like to ask you about, about Plato and the reception of, of um, and, and your particular relationship to Plato. Because when I read um, An Education by Truths, um, I thought it was a really amazing book, but I almost had this sense, uh, the only other book that's given me a similar sense is, um, is uh, uh, John Rove's book On the Market, where I thought, I thought precisely what is brilliant about this book is going to doom its reception in the sense that I thought, I thought what you're saying about education is at such odds with the doxa about education that it won't be listened to <laughs> that, um, that what you're saying, what you're, and, and, uh, but I also thought that, that as a book on Badiou, that why I thought that certain Badiouians wouldn't pay attention to it, and this is a contrast I noticed immediately, is precisely that you take seriously something that Badiou is incredibly clear about, like, like his relationship to Plato, but I think is often treated, even in Badiou scholarship, like forgetting about the people who are hostile to Badiou, who, who, whose name is Legion. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> um, that... Um, who, where it's kind of treated as a as a joke, a yes. bit of rhetorical fireworks, right? Like and 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 so forth. But no one, apart from yourself that I know of, has has taken the Badiou's Platonism seriously enough to go through the dialogues, which also made me think of a. And I'd like you to say a bit about this. A third audience who I thought would react with hostility or indifference to the book, which would be Plato scholars and and and. <laughs> And so forth. So I, thought, I thought, you know, Adam's like done this thing where like there are, there are these three potential audiences for, for the book, all of whom will, will, will you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's true. And you, as, you, as you just pointed out, it fell stillborn from the press. Right, right. Like, like Hume says of, of his treatise. Well, that's absolutely true. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, a good point. I mean, it's, it's I, and again, you know, you know, I could. This is quite bring it back to the beginning. To the, I could pose as the conceited philosopher. Of course, no one's going to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you speak so the truth I to power. Yeah. I speak the truth, <laughs> and I can recognise. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Clearly, that's right. Yeah. And I gave you that option, Adam. <laughs> you could have taken that up if you wanted to. Like, yeah. But alas. Of course, you're always tempted into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. I mean, I, and it's not an accident per se. I mean, there are three targets, at least in the book as well. I mean, yeah. the book is about the platonic dollars, but it's not. It's about the present. Of course. I mean, it's about the, I mean, it's, you can say it's an analogy, if you like, in some sense. It's like, you know, one, it's a classic thing, isn't it? You can't talk about the present, so you talk about something else, you know, um, in, in, the, in the past. But, you, but, you know, you inscribe into the, into the past the, 
the questions of the present so that you can get away with it in a certain sense. That's right. It has that sort of sense to it. But and people, so people can recognize themselves without recognizing themselves yeah, where they're yeah, like, yeah. oh, this is appalling. And then think, wait, that actually reminds me of a certain well, that, that <laughs> world was, that we live yeah, in. That, 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 that's how I began. You know, I wasn't going to write that. I was researching into contemporary educational discourses and so on. Right. And, you know, and, and I was going to talk about it in terms of four different discourses as, as I'm, you know, this book I'm never going to write, mm. you know, on, four, on the four discourses of education, the psychological, political, epistemological and welfare. So yes, yes. It's, it's underpinning all ideas of education. But that's what I was going to do in the first place. But I found when reading through Plato that, like, God, it's absolutely recognisable. Yes. Same things are going on. So in that sense, yes. So put it into that, put the present into that, and you, you get a new reading of both the present and, and also of Plato. Mm. So of course, you know, that, that's the whole point. So yes... But also on a, on a different level, yes, it was targeted against what I, you know, well, that is scholarship that we can even call it. Let's put it is early, right? Yes. So there's a lot of to and from and jumping around and people trying to reference it in regard to what they already know or someone they already know. or And that horrible thing where people take a little bit of that and a little bit of that and mix it all up and it looks really ugly. Yes. So, yeah, to do something serious on bad duty, right? Now, you know, I started this way, way back. Yeah, you know, the book's like four or five years old now. Yes. Anyway, but I began it, you know, quite a while ago, before Badgy wrote Logics of Worlds, and, you know, before he did the thing on Plato and so on. So it was, it's been, you know, in, in the, you know, it was in my mind for a, quite a while. But, you know, to say something serious about Badgy, you take Badgy seriously. Yes. To, to what would happen. Yes. You know, not because I, you know, I'm happy to call him a disciple. I don't care sure. about those terms. I think, you know, anyone, you know, I don't. Talks talking about that, something's like stupid. I am a disciple of Badu, and I, and that's what I'm sort of committed to. But it was also like, but what that, what that means is you take it seriously. Mm. It doesn't mean you're slavish. It means you take it seriously and you show why should we ta- why it's necessary to take it seriously, right? So that was the first thing. And so that, yeah, in a way, that did go against a lot of the sort of critical reception, but also the critical sort of affirmation of Badu as well. Yes. And and when you do it that way, you find different things in Badu that might not have necessarily been uh, said, at least whether they're can stand up or see. Because the affirmation is kind of about a, a recognition based on prior doxi, right? Like like you're kind of saying, he's all right, he's one of us, he's another sort of French left-wing thinker, yeah, you know, yeah. that's cool, we'll, we'll let him into the fraternity for a yeah. bit. Yeah, be reject that, sorry, yeah. No, right. yeah. And of course it was, a, of course it was uh, you know, not going to be read by educationalists because educationalists, and on the one hand, if they're not simply... Um, uh, you know, reproducing sort of the the, the, the the policy work of the state in some sort of form are pretty much wedded if they are in any way critical of what passes contemporary education. They're not right with fruitcakes, but you don't see me in the academy at least on the surface of things. Most of them are wedded to what you call a constructivist paradigm, right? There's yeah. plenty of Foucauldians, right? Yeah. There's plenty of Borgerians. Yeah. Constructivism, something. Yeah. Still, still some Borgerians around. Yeah. You know, and, and so on. And that, you know, and I'm not about reading things from the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? And 90s, right? Right. So most of them are in that framework. And so they're committed to things which Badgie was not committed to, <laughs> right? So, yes, it's, those educationalists would not necessarily receive it. And of course, Plato scholars don't have any interest at all in. Um, uh, what, you, what we call European or continental sort of uh, in, in interpolations in general. Some of them are interesting enough and do. But the history of Plato's scholarship is very, is very different and very con- mostly self-contained yes. and so on. It has, has sort of, you know, uh, orienting figures which everyone must either ascribe to or somehow find a ways to overcome and so on. So a lot of received wisdom, of course, goes on within that scholarship. 
or it's just committed to various things within the dialogues themselves, little logical questions, you know, the third man arguing all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. You know, it's still a bit insular in some ways in regard to what's at stake in Plato. It's thinking about Plato in some sort of weirdly Aristotelian framework where we just deal with the particular problems within the, a particular dialogue or how that, that's thought about there and that's thought about there, but within the framework of the thing itself and not how Plato's speaking to the city. He's actually trying to think the possibility of a, of a city, of a new city as such, you know. As if he's a philosopher in the sort of academic, broadly yeah, analytic yeah, sense, yeah, as right. if he's, he's like this is an interesting philosophical question and so is this, not as if he has a, a, a broader political philosophical project. No, yeah. of course it's yeah. partly the invention of philosophy as such. Yes, yes, don't, yes. They don't really know what this thing is, which is why they're always running looking for it. <laughs> Indeed. What is, you know, what is this Indeed. thing? So they're pers- they're, in the pursuit is the construction, if you like, you, you, know, you, you, sort of, you, you sort of say. So yeah, I mean, you're right to uh, articulate it that way, but it's one of those things. I mean, I don't think you can write a book and like be committed to the act and to what you know to what you're doing with who with with the audience in mind, or at least their the, the reception of the audience in mind. Yeah. Oh, how do I please the Plato schools? Or how do I get oh, God no. or how, yeah. how how do I get my book into the educational theory Yeah, yeah, that's right. Their horrible conferences. <laughs> <laughs> they are horrible. I've been invited to a couple just recently and the uh, agendas are uh, just sickening. What sort of thing? Well, are we you know, the, the terminology is one thing, you know, how, how you leverage this to a, for, for the outcome of this. Oh, uh, God. You know, a, the, the, the Higher Education Summit that's coming up in Melbourne is all about that, you know, about net, you know, partnerships with industry. But they use new, new, new terminologies to, to mean those sorts. So partnering up or something like that, industry and, and universities and I've and, noticed and, and leveraging your you know, capital towards love. for stakeholder interest. I've noticed the use of I've, I've used to notice the use of the word agile recently as a hilarious addition to sort of cover like to go with flexibility, right? Like yeah, yeah, so you, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if that's the way you kind of speak, you've already lost. Certainly, like, certainly. Doesn't matter what goes on, and you know the the other one on um, just sort of like uh, educational theory and philosophy journal. I think is the you know, they did some interesting stuff. They did a bad issue. I thought it was pretty ordinary and so on. But um, their conference is on educational ecologies, right? Now, these notions of ecology, of, of ecology and so on, is a uh, state government-sponsored thing. You know, if you right. it's like pushing these things into what must be researched, right? Okay. And there's literary ecologies now. It's the whole thing, you know. So notions of ecologies and so on, this sort of pseudo-vitalist metaphor is sort of, uh, you know, orienting various forms of research now. So if you can, on a grant application, you're addressing that, then you're speaking to what's being demanded, you know, somehow fixing the well-being and <laughs> anti-terrorism or something like that. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, they announced their conference under the title Educational Ecologies, right? Right, and right. fine. One thing's interesting to explore there. Who, who the hell knows? But the fact that you've already oriented yourself to the demands of the state in what needs to be thought about, yeah. already says, well, you have, there's a problematic idea of what education is, or at least you put a limit on what education is by precisely consenting to limiting, or 
by consenting to going down that road. Well, in a sense that you're, you're in the first instance. that you're not that you're not thinking because instead of in the place of thinking, you're sort of saying, "How do I respond to a pre-existing exactly. demand?" Right? Exactly. Yeah. Which which thinking can't do, as well, in as in it can't. Well, I mean, well, not and be that, thinking. Well, yes, yes, point. yes. I mean, you know, and that's the question of education: Can it be limited to this? Yes, really yes, yes. Yes. Well, it seems that within education itself, no. So we need to build out from build out right. from education itself. Um, the demonstration that no, it can't be this thing. Yeah. Which is the point. I'm like, ultimately, linking back up to my young teenage self, right. discussed with contempt with, with being in school and what yeah. was presented to us, is an attempt to say what you think you've got as education is nothing of the sort. If you can And I know this even like though I know that, nothing, right? Like, like yeah, yeah. Right, you know, yeah. And then, you know, not but as you point out, so what? No one reads the book, it's not gonna sell, it's not making its way anywhere. So it, it, it doesn't do the job that it was set out to do in a way because it, it did the job it set out to do. Yes. You know, so that's the weird thing, right? Yes, yes, yes. That's right. But, I mean, that doesn't... I mean, yeah. I mean, I we both like... Um, <laughs> Baduian statements in terms of in terms of a kind of ultra long durée kind of you know what I mean? like like from the point of the idea you, you know yeah. who gives a shit about the fact that like exactly. no one cares about as oneself as a as a person or or right or, or something like ideas are, ideas are ideas yeah, will well, will possibly endure and become you know the basis of the construction of a new generic for, you know for a different form of conceit we write for eternity Brian yeah 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 I mean out of our I mean yeah so it's more modest than <laughs> than those other guys who simply want to be fated and so forth right, right. but i think but i also think that yeah i i, I think like je, like without irony that there there is a modesty of that because on the one hand be, 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 um everything before eternity is a kind of nothingness right but it can also be an everything but it can only be an everything insofar as being part of something else that is not about the individual like that is that is not about our egos and so forth it's like best thing that could happen to your book like some some notion of that becomes part of the construction of a, of a, of a <coughs> generic relation yeah, to a bunch of ideas or practices right. that have an actual universal address, I, I, even that poke a hole in the knowledge of, of what counts as knowledge of the present. And I think the book absolutely uh, achieves doing that. And I think that at least would be acknowledged in the present if people actually if people actually read it. <laughs> um, all right, um, we should uh, we should have to finish. I, I I thought I'd end on a question that's something like: Are there uh, apart, maybe I could put it like this. So I, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a, a very, very sort of consumer style option. <laughs> Dr. Butler can answer sort of one of, of these or both of them. Or, um, but I know um, you've recently, you have a number of, of works coming out, a, a book on uh, Badu and, and, and the Antipodes, a book on what is education. And I also know that you and uh, Justin Clemens have, have recently translated um, Badu's book, um, The Metaphysics of Real Happiness, into English. And so one thing I wanted to ask you is... It's just been called Happiness in English. Oh, oh you dropped the real? We did, but the publisher wants to publish it under the term, well, under the title Happiness. Oh, so they've dropped metaphysics as well because metaphysics is unsexy and bad. No one, no one wants. <laughs> yeah, I do very much like the idea that that book will be bought by people looking for an Alain de Botton. It's got Alain in the name. It's happiness, and yeah, that's that's that seems like a great detournement. So maybe I approve of what your publishers are suggesting. But as I say, so one question I have is. 
Um, yeah, I, I think to a, a number of our listeners who haven't read that book, that the mere existence of a book with that title may surprise people. What does what does Alain Badiou have to say about happiness? Do you have to say anything about that? And a possibly related question, just, just to close, um, I wanted to ask whether there's anything... Um, New, I suppose that you're that you're excited about, or things that have come to your attention recently in the course of your work, kind of within philosophy or um, uh, with with possibly within the arts and so forth, that you think maybe maybe even in regards to politics, that that you think something is something is going on here, right? Like like in the kinds of things that I look for as a as a Baduin and as a as a Platonist, like there is some kind of like I, I am beginning to see X as a as a site or something from which, you know, uh that construction of the generic might begin. I worried that that, that latter question might be too um, um, awful, which is which is why I asked the first question about the metaphysics of real happiness. But yeah, well, I it's a great second question because you actually invited me to indulge my absolute unbadjuian side, which, ah. is that, which is that I don't see anything at all. I don't like right, but right. for Badu, like you know, it's this sort of this strange optimism, I guess. You know, yeah, certainly. Of course, we're in the worst of possible situations. There, you know, even that philosophical sort of front there remains over something within it that you know is is, is not doesn't belong to it as such, right? And it's always there, animate, no matter what. But my... <laughs> my yeah, my, yeah uh, I, I keep, just keep on evoking to my kids that they haven't got much time left. Right. It's all going to be over very... <laughs> very horribly soon. They hate it, and I shouldn't do it. And, uh, uh, <laughs> but but uh, over in a bad way, right, as well. Uh, Not like uh, the end of... Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's just... Uh, Pessimism, and more rational, more rationally, I would, you know, you, you, you have to, I say more rationally, but rationally, you must opt for and decide that 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 um, is not the way of things, right? And again, precisely because you know, it's not that it's not that these things just happen. It's these things happen because we do these things in a particular way, and we become oriented to doing a particular way. And so it's clearly the case, you know, I think Marx, Marx said, everyone said this, it's clearly possible to orient yourself to things in, a, in another way. Mm. That, 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 that. So you've got to hold out that that, that rationally demonstrable actuality, you have to hold out that that, that is actionable or, 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 mm. or, or manifest, or, or it's possible to make that manifest. And so I, I would hold to that in that sense, but emotionally I, I don't have any in regards to, regards to the other thing, yeah, <laughs> they're not related at this point. Now talking about happiness, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I can't leave it on that. Uh, point, but, um, yeah, what is education? Book is a collection of essays, just or- oriented around that question. Just asked a whole bunch of different people to respond to that question in whatever way they sort of um, fancy. There's some interesting, interesting responses. Uh, Al- Al- Alessandro Rousseau has written a, a dialogue, a contemporary. It's you know, again, it's, it's like what we talked about before. It's a dialogue with these sort of ancient sort of characters overlooking the ruins of the academy, essentially. I'm just on top of a hill, but having a dialogue absolutely inscribed with contemporary terminology. It's quite fun, and it's very um, to the point, and it's sort of, um, you know, very, very exposing. And there's a whole, um, there's like six, seven, eight, eight, nine essays altogether, I think, in the collection from various different people. Keith Anson Pearson is in there, Sylvia Federici. Right. Boris Croix has given us a little short piece, and... So a, a whole range of um, interesting people. Spanish guy Jorge La Rosa has written a beautiful sort of um, 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 metaphor around the question of the ogre. Oh, right. Yeah, it's really, really huh. interesting. How the ogre's relation to children, you know, is a, 
you know, um, so that's pretty cool. So that, that, that that's you know should come out by the end of the year, hopefully. Uh, Dieu and the Antipodes, which is really based around the event when Badgie was here in 2014. So it's a bunch of lectures that he gave. There's a couple of interviews. One we the MSCP did as well as one yeah. Radio National. Um, the presentations that were given were reworked by the presenters and submitted. And some original essays by excellent um, contributors, including, of course, your good self, and Robert Moncado, Christian Gelder, Leah Hills, John Cleary. Um, and that sort of rounds out the volume, and so that also should be out hopefully by the end of the year. And yeah, the translation's been submitted, so that should be out sometime. Then I will be hopefully turning my attention to the book on the four discourses of education finally. Ah. In a bit more of a serious way, we'll see. This is one that I'm I'm so excited about. I'll I'll, I'll mention the listeners there. So among the four aspects of all educational discourses that Adam mentioned there's the you know the dependency of these discourses um, in the midst of their kind of constitutive obscuring and rejection of Marx St. Paul Plato um, and look at and Lacan yeah I, I'm really glad that you have a chance to work on that um, okay so in in uh, finishing uh, the podcast I, I'd, I'd like to um, take the opportunity to thank you very very much Dr. Butler it's been a really great pleasure talking to you and uh, um, because my role as host of this podcast is to say things that are vaguely flattering to my guest and kind of twee a, a position that I, I embrace fully I, I'd like to say that uh, among the things that give me hope in a fallen world, your pessimism paradoxically is one of them. And that is because I, I think one of the things that Badiou sh- shows us is that, is that optimism and pessimism, and perhaps like all good things, have sort of transcend our, um, as I think, is it Rousseau or Pascal who says, our detestable selves, right? And, and, and that one can be subjectively, like to see no hope in the world, but to understand that that's irrelevant to one's rational commitment to do that. So yeah, in that sense, as the Americans uh, say, and I say this deliberately because I know it will disgust you, um, uh, you're an inspiration, Dr. Adam Butler, and, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much. Uh, you've been listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life um, um, with uh, Dr. Adam Butler. Uh, thank you very much. 